0: thy rod and thy staff they comfort me thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies thou anointest my head with oil my cup runneth over surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and i will dwell in the house of the lord forever thank you you may be seated The title of the message this morning is The Champion, and it's a story, and it's one that we all know, and it's taken from 1 Samuel chapter 17, and you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17, and um, yeah, just browse that chapter as, as we move forward. The story takes place when the kingdom of Israel was in its infancy, during the reign of its first king, Saul. God's people, it seems, had a perpetual enemy, the Philistines. And I think the Philistines originally came from the island of Crete, but they had settled in the coastal plains of Israel along the Mediterranean Sea. That's the western side, the western border of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea. And on the eastern side, there's a mountain range. And between the mountain range, uh, which is home to some very important cities, Jerusalem, um, uh, Bethlehem, and Hebron, and others uh, are up in the mountains. And uh, Tel Aviv and some of those are down along the coast. But between the coast and the mountains is what is called the Shephelah. And the Shephelah is uh, ridges and valleys that run from the coastal plain up into the mountains. And I've never been to Israel, but I'm told that these, these, the area of the Shephelah is very beautiful. It's very productive and uh, with fields and vineyards. Now, in addition to the Shephelah being uh, productive and useful and, and beautiful area, it was also very strategic because uh, the Philistines or other enemies of Israel could make their way to the heart of Israel, Jerusalem, through the Shephelah, through these ravines and valleys that led from the coast to the city of Jerusalem. And the purpose was, that uh, here in 1 Samuel 17, the Philistines were trying to snake their way through the Shephelah to get to Jerusalem in order to divide the country in two, north and south, and therefore overthrow it. So King Saul catches up with the Philistine army, and he confronts them in the Valley of Elah. And again, I haven't been to Israel, but I'm told that the Valley of Elah is one of the most beautiful of the valleys of the Shephelah. And the Israelites set up camp on one ridge, and the Philistines set up camp on the other ridge. And there's the valley of Elah between them. And they just sit there for weeks and they stare at each other. It's a deadlock. If either one travels down from the mountain into the valley and up the other side to defeat the enemy, they are completely exposed, and it's improbable. They will not be successful. And so they they sit there for weeks facing each other, staring at each other across the valley of Elah. So finally, to break the deadlock, the Philistines send their mightiest warrior down into the valley floor. And every morning and every evening for 40 days, Goliath came down to the valley of Elah and mocked the armies of Israel in defiance of the God of Israel. Now throughout history, there has been numerous times where champion warfare Has been implemented. And this was to limit casualties. And so the belief was that the gods decided who won the war. And so if you have two opposing armies, why go to all the bother of having all these casualties if you can just send one man from each side to duel it out and the gods can decide in that way who is the victor? It's called champion warfare. Now this particular champion named Goliath was a giant. He stood over nine feet tall and he's outfitted head to toe in glittering bronze armor. And we're told that uh, just his coat of armor was over 100 pounds and he had a spear, a sword, and a shield. Basically, he was about 500 pounds of muscle and metal. He was a fierce warrior. He appeared to be deadly. For 40 days, the Israelites hung their head in dismay. They were in great fear of this beast of a man. He was simply too big for them. And then one day, David shows up. David is a shepherd boy who is bringing supplies for his older brothers who are enlisted in Saul's army. And as he's talking with his brothers, the giant appears in the valley of Elah. And it says that when the giant presented himself, all the men of Israel fled and were very afraid. So David begins to ask some questions about the situation. He is disturbed that no one is willing to fight this behemoth. David says to Saul, I will go. I will fight him. And Saul says, look, you can't do this. You're an inexperienced youth. And Goliath has been a war machine from his youth. But David somehow convinces Saul that he is able. And he testifies that the same God that delivered him from the lion and the bear would deliver this vile Philistine as well. And after trying on and then ditching Saul's armor, David heads straight into a duel with a giant with nothing more than a sling and a staff. And the giant sees David approaching and begins to taunt him. You're coming at me with just sticks? I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the field. And the shepherd draws closer and closer. And he's insulted that he's only coming against him with a stick. And David says... To Goliath in verse 45. Thou comest to me with a sword and a spear and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God of the armies of Israel whom thou hast defiled. This day will the Lord deliver thee into my into mine hand. And I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. And I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day. Unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. That the whole earth may know that David... Is king of the land. Well, not quite. That the whole earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it into our hands. And the shepherd boy runs toward this beast of a man who is well over three feet taller. And he pulls a stone and slips it into his sling. And he lets it fly and the stone sinks into the skull of the giant and sends all nine feet of him crashing to the earth where David stands over the enemy in victory and delivers the final blow. The entire army runs for their lives and the Lord of Heaven's armies did indeed bring deliverance that day to the children of Israel. This is the story Of David and Goliath and we want to look at David versus Goliath but before we do that there is two other men that David needed to get through and we want to look at that as well first of all it's his older brother Eliab David versus Eliab David was the youngest brother and he has been anointed the next king Eliab was the oldest brother And in verse 6 of the previous chapter, the prophet Samuel mistakes Eliab for the one who should be the next king. Based on his appearance, his size, and what Samuel perceives to be someone who looks like he could be a king. But now David was anointed, and Eliab disdained him. And he pokes fun at David. He says, how are those few sheep doing? that you're supposed to be taking care of. He's insulting David and implying that he, as an older brother, has much more responsibility than his younger brother. It seems like he may be a typical firstborn. Now, God bless you, those of you who are oldest. We know you've arrived, and the rest of us haven't. But please show us a little patience. Don't criticize the life out of your siblings before they have a chance to mature. Don't disdain your younger siblings. Encourage them. They need your support and affirmation. So the story could have ended here rather abruptly. David could have allowed the the put down from his older brother to discourage him. But David replies, What have I done? Is there not a cause? What is the cause he refers to? Well, he understands that the Lord of Heaven's army is greater than the God of the Philistines. So in his mind, you could send someone, anyone, into the battle against Goliath, and the Lord of Heaven's armies would prevail. Give God a chance to show himself victorious. Now sometimes those who are closest to us ridicule us, but David does not allow that to take his focus off of the one true God of heaven. Nor does it distract him from the task at hand. And so David moves from his older brother to face another man, Saul. David versus Saul. Who was Saul? Well, you remember reading in, in um, chapter 10 of 1 Samuel that Saul was head and shoulders above the rest of his fellow men he was from the tribe of Benjamin now in Genesis 49 Jacob blesses his sons and he uh, seemingly passes over the first three he gets to the fourth son Judah and he says Judah thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies thy father's children shall bow down before thee Judah is a lion's whelp. from the prey my son thou art going up He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of his people be. The current king, Saul, was a big man from the tribe of Benjamin, who fit the part outwardly of being king. But the royal line was to come from Judah. The current future king, David, having already been anointed, was from the tribe of Judah. And God told Samuel that when he went to anoint David king, that I, the Lord, do not choose men based on what is seen, but I look at the heart. And David's heart was turned toward God. We see this from the moment that David stepped into camp. Before David gets there, the only person talking about God is Goliath, and he's defying God. Saul was saying, who are we that we can ever fight against this giant? And David says, who is this man compared to the God of Israel? David was asking the right questions. When you face your enemy and you ask, who am I compared to the giant? You're already defeated. There's no right answer. You are smaller than the enemy. But when you ask, who is this enemy compared to God, you've already gained the victory. If we ask the wrong question in the face of the enemy, we will see defeat. Saul said, you're a youth, and Goliath has been a warrior from his youth, or since he was a youth. Saul thought that Goliath was too big to fight, But David said he was too big to miss. God's people should never be paralyzed by fear in the face and in the presence of the enemy. Now preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemy. The victory celebration has already been set. The table is set for us. It seems as if David's testimony is what finally convinces Saul to allow him to go and fight Goliath. David testifies that he had been faced with lions and bears who would steal, come and steal the sheep. And God had delivered him and given him the victory over them. And so God will surely hand over this Philistine as well. David's testimony is, is beautiful. Now I'm concerned that some of us attempt to give a testimony without, passing, without first passing the test. And that turns out just to be a moanie. Imagine if David had hid from the bear or ran from the lion in fear. He would have no testimony. He would simply be moaning about the things that have been rough for him. How life has threw too many curveballs. The bears did this and the lions took that. There's no safe place for the sheep and probably won't be until after the November elections. But David rose to the challenge of placing his trust in God. And he passed the test. And now he has a testimony. He's not moaning about all the things that are going wrong in his life. He's testifying of how faithful God has been in his life. Finally, Saul tells David, Go and the Lord be with you. And I think this is the shortest prayer meeting for the largest battle that the Israelites would ever face. Go and the Lord be with you. This is the first time we see Saul mentioning God, and I'm blessed to see that David's faithfulness and his testimony is spreading. We have to give credit to Saul for trusting David to defeat the giant. It is also worth mentioning that David and Saul are not strangers. There's a reason that. When somebody tells Saul that David's in camp, he sends for him. Saul wants to see him. He wants to talk to him. David is spending a lot of time with Saul. He was the one chosen to soothe Saul with music when Saul was bothered by an evil spirit. And in the end of chapter 16, verse 21, it says that Saul loved David greatly. And he made him his armor bearer. So Saul and David know each other. And that relationship, I believe, allowed Saul to also uh, have some uh, trust David. So finally, we get to David and Goliath. David versus Goliath. Now, I read recently that um, if you would like to make a dogmatic statement without embarrassing yourself or making a fool of yourself, just phrase it as a question. And so maybe sometimes instead of making a point, I'll ask a question. Who was Goliath? He was a large warrior. But notice that he did not have a sling. He did not have a bow. He did not ride a horse. Goliath was an infantryman. And I believe his skills were limited to close combat. And he says to David, come to me that I might feed your flesh to the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the field. And I think the key phrase is come to me. He wanted no parts of uh, long distance warfare or anything like that. He wanted to be up close and personal where his sheer size and wingspan was a huge advantage. Goliath is challenging a duel with hand-to-hand combat. I think he forgets that warfare does not have rules, and David takes a different approach. Now, why did no one else think this through for the last 40 days, that they could, instead of hand-to-hand combat against a giant, could throw something at him or shoot something at him? Why was David the only one who thought about an alternative? Well, fear is paralyzing. And I think uh, blinding. And we can see that uh, as we go along. Now David never intended to fight hand-to-hand with a much bigger man. And I don't know what was going through his mind as he approached the giant, but if it was evening, uh, Goliath came out morning and evening, and if it was evening and the sun was going down, he he may very well have been standing in the shadow of this giant. Yea, though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. What about this giant, Goliath? Let's make a few, do- a few more dogmatic statements formed as questions so as not to appear foolish. Is this giant really the fearsome-looking warrior that he is dressed up to be? The giant. I'm sorry, the Bible mentions twice in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel that when Goliath went down into the valley of Elah, somebody went before him bearing a shield. Why would a nine-foot-tall giant need somebody to walk before him bearing a shield? Why was Goliath... But why does Goliath not see David coming with the tools that he had? If he was such an experienced warrior, why did he not see that David had a sling? That this was not going to be hand-to-hand combat and then make some changes that would give him a better advantage? I think any experienced warrior would have known what David was going to do next. Why Why did Goliath not see it coming? It seems as if He was limited to close combat, and it seems as if he can't see things that are further out. It seems as if he's nearsighted. Some people even speculate that there was something wrong with Goliath, that maybe he had a condition called acromegaly, which is common among giants, and it causes nearsightedness. Modern day giants are not agile people. They're uh, more clumsy and slow and often deal with nearsightedness. The, the tallest man was, a na- was named Robert Wadlow and he died at the age of 24 and he was still growing at 8 foot 11. And he had acromegaly. There's even speculation that Abraham Lincoln had acromegaly. So it causes nearsightedness and sometimes double vision, but in saying this, I may be taking some credit away from David's accomplishment, and I have no problem doing that, but I don't want to take anything away from what God did for the children of Israel that day. So that's why I formed it in a question, rather than make a dogmatic statement. Was Goliath the fearsome warrior that he was dressed up to be? The Israelites on the mountain ridge looking down on him thought he was this extraordinarily powerful foe. And could it be that the very thing that gave him this fearsome appearance, this apparent strength, was also the source of his greatest weakness? We know Goliath's height, and we know how much some of his armor weighed. He's a 500-pound beast. And his metal and his armor is shiny. And it flashes as he steps out onto the valley floor. And he looks like a monster. David, we know, is younger and much smaller than the giant. Probably in his late teens, if he had been 20, it's likely he would have also been with his brothers enlisted in the army. But this is sometime after he was anointed king. And I don't think that David was small. Or maybe I should say I don't think he was small for his age. Uh, remember, he he had done some pretty significant things up to this point. He had killed some fierce animals. He had grabbed them by the beard and slew them. And he, he puts on Saul's armor and he doesn't When he takes them off, he doesn't say, these don't fit. He says, these aren't proven. I'm not used to these. These are just going to slow me down. But he doesn't say they don't fit. And maybe they didn't. He was also Eliab's brother. And he was his younger brother, but Eliab was tall. And these same uh, genes that flowed through Eliab were also in David. And so maybe... He wasn't as small as we picture him to be. He was, after all, the king's armor bearer. Now as they make their way toward each other, David and Goliath have a few words to say to each other. Now Goliath is insulted that a young man thinks he can overpower him. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? I will give your flesh to the fowls of the air and the beasts of the field. And he cursed David by his gods and said, come to me. And in Goliath's eyes, this was easy. A giant with deadly weapons against a boy with a stick. David says, you come to me with a sword and a shield and a spear. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. And I will take your head from you and feed it to the carcasses of the Philistines. Feed the carcasses of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David sees this monstrosity of a man who is depending on his size and strength and spear as no match for the God of heaven's armies. In essence, David is saying, you're only coming at me with a sword, a spear, and a shield, but no God? David does not base his confidence in his great skill, although he has great skill. He does not base his confidence in his great faith. Although it tells us he is filled with faith. He is filled with the spirit from the time he was anointed. But he places his confidence and complete trust in his great God. Notice what David is concerned about in verse 46. That all the world would know that there is a God in Israel. So David approaches Goliath and he unravels his sling. In August of 1920, nearly 100 years ago, Ray Chapman stepped up to the plate against New York Yankees pitcher Carl Mays. And for some reason, Ray never saw the ball released by Mays, and it struck him in the head at 95 miles an hour, and he died. Historians say that a slinger could send a rock much faster than a baseball can throw, than a a baseball player can throw the ball. They also have pinpoint accuracy, as we read about in Judges 20, where there were 700 mighty warriors from the tribe of Benjamin, who were extremely accurate. During medieval times, it's believed that they could, with a sling, take down birds that were in flight, which is more than I can do with a 12-gauge. Make no mistake about it, the sling was not a child's toy. It is a weapon designed to kill. This is not a sling shot. This is a sling. It's a weapon of war. Some say that if you paired the rocks in the Shephelah, which were very dense and heavy, with an experienced slinger, you could achieve the same stopping power as a small handgun. When David fires that thing at Goliath, he has every intention and every expectation of being able to hit Goliath precisely where he is aiming. David is an experienced slinger, and he is fearless, even in his youth. That's who David was. Goliath never saw what was coming. The stone sank into his skull, and he sank face down into the ground. And David ran up to him and delivered on his threat. Essentially, the Philistine army was trying to split the kingdom in two. And David... Succeeds in splitting their champion in two. Was David the underdog? Was he at a disadvantage? Was the giant as strong as he appeared? David, the anointed king to be, being filled with the Spirit of the Lord, did not see himself as an underdog. Rather, he looked down with pity on the giant who dared to come at him with a sword, a shield and a spear, but no God. David knew that anyone entering battle without the protection of the Lord of Heaven's armies was defeated before the battle began. So what is the point of the story? Who does the giant represent? Who does David represent? And where do I fit in in all of this? We have been told that what this story means is that You and I are David, and we face giants in our life. And anything that we fear or anything that robs us of joy is Goliath. And if we just have faith, like David, we can get rid of the giants in our lives. Well, what happens when we let the sling fly and we miss? Because we will. We tell our children and our youth to be like David. What are your struggles? Attack the enemy. Overcome. What are your fears? Have more faith. Do a little better. Try a little harder to be like David. But David was not a great king because he was sinless, he was very much a sinner. How did David walk into this valley and barely look at the giant? It didn't even seem to faze him. And yet when he was walking on a rooftop one day, he couldn't stop looking at Bathsheba. How can someone so focused on God that he doesn't notice the size of a giant let his his focus wander so far into lust and murder? How can someone who takes down lions and bears be overrun by his own passions and desires? And if I tell those who are struggling to just put more effort into their struggle, just to have more blind faith that they can overcome, just to try harder to be more like David, we are setting them up for failure and a big one. So even David, in his own strength, experiences failures. Times where he missed. Times where he didn't even pull out the sling and he didn't even put up a fight. Times where he sinned. And this story is not primarily about the faith of David. And it is not about Goliath. And it doesn't give us a blank check to live like David did in every respect. But we sort of teach our children this. And it's confusing. We tell ourselves that David represents us in this story. That is wrong. We can learn from David... And we can even gain tips on how to overcome. But to say that I am David in this story, and that the giant is my struggle or failure or some kind of hurdle that I need to overcome is borderline blasphemy. Let me back up and retell the story of David and Goliath. I promise this will be a condensed version. David's father said to his son, the anointed king, the one chosen by God to deliver Israel, to go down to the battle and check on his brothers. The son, who is David, when arriving at the valley of Elah, finds that they have resorted to champion warfare. In this method, only two men will fight to determine which side is victorious. When David walked into the valley, all hope of deliverance was on his shoulders. If he wins, Israel is delivered. If he loses, all Israel is lost. David willingly went and risked death by a giant to rescue his nation and bring deliverance to the people of the land. The son that the father sent did what no one else could do. All Israel was represented in David that day as he entered the valley as their champion warrior. All shared in the victory of David. There was another conversation, this one in heaven. The father asked the son to go, check, to go to earth, to check on the state of mankind. And the son, being willing, was born into the lineage of David, of royal descent. And he lived on earth, and he faced fears and trials as a man. And he was tested, and he found to be faithful. And he developed a testimony of being tested in all things that we as humans are tested in, and he overcame them all. After living on the earth for 30 years... We find him, Jesus, in great agony in the garden. He's not in the valley of Elah, and he's not in the Shephelah. He is up in the mountains outside of Jerusalem, in the garden of Gethsemane, and he is entering a much bigger valley than the valley of Elah, and he is facing a much bigger foe than the giant Goliath. And he is begging the Father to take the cup of suffering away from him. He is feeling the weight of death. Of sin, It is death on a cross, the cruelest of deaths, reserved for the most rebellious outcasts and sinners. But more than that, he is bearing in his body, on his shoulders, the sin of all humanity as he enters the valley. He knows that the sin deserves death and separation from God. And he will bear in his body our sin. And he will receive the full wrath and justice of God... And the devil is smiling, and he feels himself swell up with pride. He is turning out to be quite a formidable foe, a giant, if you will. The devil has indwelt and twisted the very people God has chosen. The children of Israel were given the law, and all the blessing and connection to God. And the devil has made his way onto the valley floor of Elah, and he is sneaking and snaking his way through the ravines toward Jerusalem. And he knows if he can win this battle, the entire world is his. And he has done a fine job of fooling them into believing that in the story of David and Goliath, which they were very familiar with, they were David. And they needed to personally be victorious in order to obtain victory. And Jesus' final words in the garden are, not my will, but thine be done. And not long after that, the Son on the hill of Golgotha, faces death on the cross and separation from the Father. And while giving his life to be the final and only sacrifice that can ever make atonement for my sin, with his death, he sends a rock into the forehead of the devil, and the devil lies in a heap on the ground. And three days later, Jesus, raised from the dead, victorious over death and sin, And he stands over the giant and makes one final blow, securing victory for all believers for all time. Victory over the giant of sin and the devil and death. So here we are, 3,000 years after the Battle of Elah, and we marvel at how a young man was able to kill a giant. But more than that, we look back to Christ, And we praise him for being lifted up, for defeating death and sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Christ took our sin on himself. He received the wrath of God. Instead of me receiving the just punishment for my sin, Jesus took it. God looked at Jesus and he saw my sin. And he unleashed his wrath on him. And when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And I receive all the love that is due Christ. I am adopted into the family of God, and I receive the inheritance that Jesus deserved. God does this all for me because of Christ and his righteousness. This is the real story of David and Goliath. It is not about Goliath, and it's not really about David. And it is certainly not about you being David. It is about the gospel of Jesus Christ unto salvation. It is about our champion, Jesus, who entered the valley as the representative for all humanity. He is our champion. There is salvation in no other name, and he alone gains the victory over the giant. He alone gains the victory over the giant. He alone is the Savior of the world. And when we face our enemy and we lose, it is because we don't accept the victory that our champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, obtained for us. We need to stop trying to win our battles and accept the victory through Christ. Stop sharing your money and start sharing the testimony of someone who has been tested, Jesus Christ, our champion, He passed the test, and he gained the victory. And one day our champion is going to return and rule in righteousness and justice and victory, not just in the Valley of Elah and not just in the Shephelah and not just in the Middle East, but throughout the world, King of kings and Lord of lords. If you feel as if life is presenting giant after giant after giant, and these giants are taunting you, Day after day after day. Stop cowering in fear of this enemy. Remind the enemy who your God is and allow the one who has already won the battle to provide deliverance for you. Spend more time looking at Jesus and less time looking at the giant. Spend more time telling others about God you serve than the giants you face. And stop believing the lie. That the giant is bigger than your God. Victory belongs to the Lord. The battle is his. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The story of David and Goliath is all about salvation and deliverance. Provided through the victory of Jesus Christ, who is our champion. He took our sin and gave us life when we deserve death. Who are you in the story? Well, we are not David. We are scared. We are fearful. We are the cowering Israelites. But those Israelites achieved victory that day through David. And we, in our weakness, achieve victory over sin by what our champion has accomplished for us on the cross. Accept the victory and the gracious gift of life. Recognize that you are a sinner. You need a savior. You need a champion. You need Jesus. He is coming back to judge the world, and unless you claim his blood as the cleansing atonement for your sin, you will suffer the wrath of Almighty God for all eternity. But you can trade that for life, abundant life, through Christ. Take it, receive it, and live in victory provided by the power of Christ. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes are as a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns. He had a name written on them that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Even so come, Lord Jesus.